0: regulation that's the big issue so whether it's for us whether it's getting your own lab license which takes you know minimum in California about a nine months to a year to getting a lab a lab test, tested meaning you have to do trials of hundreds of people and kind of compare it in our case to like the gold standard of someone drawing blood from their arm it's just a very time-consuming process and you know there's just so many hurdles around that I think that's pretty scary in terms of healthcare us i think in other
1: countries welcome to innovation and leadership where i interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers elite special operations soldiers startup ceos who sold their companies for billions of dollars pro athletes hollywood filmmakers really as many different kinds of experts as i can the whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate thanks for listening and i hope you enjoyed today's show Today on the show, I've got Phil Fung, CEO at KIT.com. Phil, thanks for doing this.
0: Oh, no problem. Good to see you again, Jess.
1: Yeah. So we met back a number of years ago at the Downtown Project. And, you know, I'm sure most people are super impressed with you being engineer number 15 at Facebook and your other tech successes. I loved how passionate you were about Street Fighter 2. I've never forgotten how, how much into that community you are. I didn't realize. There was such a community. I think that's the best video game of all time, and uh, it seems like you think it's pretty yeah, cool
0: too. Yeah, I, I think it's the best video game of all time for sure. I think I've been playing it since I was, I don't know, like 12, 13 years old, and I've never stopped. I feel like it's it, there's just so much depth to it, and the fact that it's like real time, it's really cool as well. And it's not a lot of people that are into it um, these days, but I try to go to the tournaments once in a while. I'm not that great, but I'm you know I just love I just love it as a as a as a hobby for sure
1: you know i and i promise we'll talk about business stuff but i'm interested like you know as a little kid i remember like being it's probably like i'm like an eight-year-old 1988 or something my mom came home from a garage sale with an atari and like an apple box full of games you know (laughs) like took Mm -hmm. me and my brother like weeks to have like tried them all out once right most of them were terrible and Mm some were really fun and and then we like you know worked our guts out in the summer to try and earn enough money for a Sega Genesis. We thought that was the best thing going, right? Um, yeah, I remember that. And, and my friends had Super Nintendo's and when Street Fighter came out, it was like it was different. You know, I played a, but between my skateboarding and BMX, I played a lot of video games, right? And it was distinctly mm-hmm. different. What do you think those game makers did that was so special? Like I mean, it really, like, took the world by storm there in the 90s, you know?
0: Yeah, I think a couple of things. One was the competitive nature of it. I think, like, there was a bunch of video games coming out and nothing that was, more like, a one-on-one type game that you could play in the arcade. And so, you know, there was the old stuff like Pac-Man and Pong, right? And things like that. But, like, nothing that was, like, modern in that era for for video games that was competitive so I think that was one thing two I think was the fact that like they spent so much time on each character like like kind of giving them a personality I think that that part like just resonated with people and then I think like three the fact that it was like something you can do socially was super interesting like you would have people like I don't know if you remember this but you, we you would gather around the arcade and put your quarter up on the on the little monitor, if you were like, want to go second, want to go next, right? And you can't. There's nothing that replaces that kind of competitiveness, and I still haven't seen that ever since, like, you know, playing that game. Like, no, there's never been an arcade game that you can play in real life that's like super competitive. So I think it's really special. Hopefully, one day to make something that's 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 better than that. But it's, it's been around for you know more than 20 years. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah.
1: Well, for people who don't know, for starters, congratulations on on the acquisition. Um, can you tell people what kit.com is and and about your big news?
0: Yeah, so kit.com is a way to do your medical exams at home. And so I think I think a big problem with healthcare is that if you want to get your health tested, which basically means a lot of time your blood testing, you have to go to a clinic, you have to like go outside or have someone come over your house to do it and there's all kinds of issues with that. First of all, inconvenience, but also having to see someone else or, to, or, or have, be near someone else is a big issue during COVID times. And so if there is a way to do that, that's super low friction, I think it can really change the way that healthcare works. And that's from a more like responsive to a more like preventative model. And so that's kind of the goal of kid.com. We make the entire at home, uh, the entire medical exam at home so that you can do your blood testing, your blood pressure weight, everything, uh, just from opening a box and sending it back. And it's like super high quality, clinical grade type kit. And so I've been super interested in this idea for a long time. And that's that's kind of what the company does.
1: So, you know, I'm interested. You are obviously a super connected guy out in Silicon Valley. You left Facebook in 2013. Is that right? How long ago? Is that about right?
0: I mean, yeah, I think it's been eight years. Okay. More than that, yeah. So,
1: you know, you've done some other cool things. I'd love to hear, you know, let people hear about Operator and some other stuff. But what was it about this that you thought,
0: okay, this is what I want to dig into? So my um, my mom and dad, I grew up in New York City in Brooklyn, and my mom and dad both worked in hospitals, and my mom was a lab tech. And so I've been around this lab testing for a very long time. I have some like some genetic genetic issues where I have to get my blood tested a lot. And I always thought like since I was a little kid, like how do you why why is it so hard to do this? Why do you have to go to a doctor's office to do this? And it doesn't make any sense, right? And so I've always wanted to do this problem. It's not like something that came to me over like the last year or something like that. It's I've been wanting to work on this like before, you know, I, I was working professionally. So that's how I got into making kits.
1: I think, you know, it it's interesting how like blatantly obvious it is that like oh yeah why do we really need to like schedule these appointments and go down there and all this kind of stuff and but you know as far as I know nobody had done this before have they like are you kind of a pioneer for the space
0: I mean I mean I would like to think that but I think like there are a couple of other companies work, working on, on stuff that's similar with, like, over-the-mail testing. I think one big direct consumer brand is called Everlywell that does, like, you know, over-the-mail testing. There's another one called Let's Get Checked, but, but that's also over-the-mail. But I think, like, no one's really broken out and made this, like, kind of the norm. So it's nothing, not not a very big industry. Yeah. Like, there's, the, the blood testing industry is obviously really big. Like, LabCorp, Quest, of like... Together they're like 30 billion, 40 billion dollar companies, right? And so, but no one's tried to take it to a level where it's just like more modern and it's just been the same thing for many, many years. And I think there's a huge opportunity there. I think like it just makes things way better if people are just monitoring themselves all the time. And really, I think like the one thing that I think that's really, that's really, there's many things bad about the US healthcare industry, but I think one thing that's specifically bad is that you make money from sick people, right? Like you 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 all the drug companies make money from from trying to cure you when you're sick, like cancer drugs, diabetes, all this other stuff. But no one really makes money from preventing you from getting sick, right? It's very few companies outside of like a few like health insurance companies that are like self-serving, right? So I think like if you could move Monitoring to be like way more frequent. You could just start doing things that you couldn't do before, and people would just be healthier in general. And you could have like outcomes like based on that. So that's where I want to get to. We were lucky enough to be noticed by a, a company named Roe. They they own Roman and Modern Fertility and a lot of other brands. And they thought we we kind of came up to the we met up with them one day, and they were uh, interesting in using us for a pilot. And then later on they they said, hey, well, we, we'd like to acquire you guys sometime if, if possible. And so it seemed like a pretty good marriage of, of, of two companies. So we were super interested. And now I think we have the resources to scale out a lot more. Like Roe is a $5 billion company and they, they do a lot of modern healthcare and really are thinking outside the box. And that's kind of what we want to get to with Kit as well. So super, inter- super, just super grateful that we were able to get to that opportunity.
1: Yeah, well... You know, it's interesting to me that you know. You sounds like you've been thinking about this problem for over twenty years, but really, like from from starting the company to sale, like it seems like you did that pretty quick.
0: How how long was that? The company incorporated in February twenty twenty. So yeah, that's right. Not too long ago. You know, we just like went, we just had an idea that we thought was really powerful. And we kind of got to the right place at the right time. I think that that's really a big piece of it. So it's just got lucky in many ways.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I, I know you guys aren't sharing the numbers on that, but, but congratulations, because I know they're big numbers. So what do you think that people who aren't from the space might not have realized about the kind of hurdles you have to overcome to, to do business like this?
0: Yeah, so I'm pretty new to healthcare as well. So I've work, mostly worked with like social apps in the past. And I think the biggest hurdle with healthcare is their regulation, right? And so most of the healthcare tech companies I've seen are really just like writing papers and getting signatures and getting the right kind of like tests in place so that they can kind of go, go forward and, 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 and be allowed to use their product. And the actual like discovery Portion of things and the creativity portion of things is actually not I would say like maybe 20-30% of, of, of healthcare it's really about reg- regulation that's the big issue so whether it's for us whether it's getting your own lab license which takes you know minimum in California about a nine months to a year to getting a lab a lab test that meaning you have to do trials on hundreds of people and co- kind of compare it in our case to like the gold standard of someone Drawing blood from their arm. It's just a very time consuming process. And, you know, there's just so many hurdles around that. I think that's pretty scary in terms of healthcare in the US. I think in other countries, it's actually much easier. And I've heard of many tech startups that are doing healthcare, but maybe they start, you know, in Europe or in South America or Asia because there's just less regulation. So, yeah, I think that's like, unfortunately, most of healthcare is just regulation, right? And so, and everyone's trying to get, Basically, make their own hurdle, like like their own little like ways around certain hurdles, and so that's basically a mishmash of a bunch of uh, different ways to get around to, to to kind of pass regulation. And so it's unfortunate what it is, but uh, you can see why it, it is what it is. So yeah, it's it's good and bad, right? I think it pre- 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 presents. Uh, there's obviously a lot that can be fixed about healthcare, like especially in the U.S. And because there's so much regulation, it's not as easy to start as like a SaaS company, but it also like prevents, presents a lot of opportunity, especially these days when it's so easy, to software as a service, that there's so much regulation that you can really fill the barrier around like having something FDA approved or having something that's, that, that's passed like CLIA and, and past a bunch of patient studies. So I think it's good and bad, right? So hopefully it will kind of change in the future, but regulation is really a big hurdle these days.
1: Yeah. When you're coming to the industry as an outsider and there's all these regulations, how do you, how do you decide what, you know, what advisors to rely on or who to hire to help you through that stuff?
0: Yeah. Especially going into the healthcare industry. Like when we first started, we didn't know much about what to do and how in, in terms of how to get a a lab license, like a CLIA lab license, how to get tests approved, how to even like approach healthcare companies, insurance companies with your product. It was a huge learning process. We could have like initially when we, for example, when we first started the lab, we kind of approached some consultants that help you set up a lab. And then it turned out that it was just really hard to work with those guys. This was pre-COVID where it's pretty, it was pretty hard to set up a lab. And so we decided just to learn everything ourselves. And It took a while, but eventually we just kind of understood what everything was and, you know, what we had to do. So like we tried to rely on advisors, it didn't work out. And we just kind of read the documentation ourselves and figured things out in terms of how to register yourself for a lab, how to like get something approved to be a valid test. Going to healthcare companies, we relied a lot on our networks. We went to conferences. And so we just built a lot from scratch rather than relying on advisors.
1: Yeah, um, and then when it comes to the marketing of it, what to, what were some of the lessons you learned? You know, sales and marketing in a new industry.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, so this is this is my first time doing a B two B company, and so I'm used to just paying for ads, getting users. This is definitely all about deals, and I think the the. The thing was, I think, like, the value proposition was very easy to sell. Like, hey, whatever you're doing that is is kind of right now pretty painful for a patient to do, meaning have, having to kind of go get their blood tested in a clinic that you can now get it over the mail. I think the value prop is, like, pretty easy to sell. It's like, how do you, how do you finish the deal, right? Like, deals, like, take a year, sometimes more, right? And so we've been talking to some insurance companies for a long time. But I think the value prop is if you start with something that's very straightforward and how it's useful, like, for for example, I think if a patient tests themselves more, they're probably more engaged with their healthcare provider. They're healthier. And so they they use utilize self-insured insurance less. It's just a no brainer. Right. And so that's never product fit has never been the problem. It's it's just been time and funds. You just need funds to, to run a lab. You need funds to ship stuff right and so and recruit patients and things like that so that's what i've learned like i uh, like if you could just start with market fit then it's pretty easy to get past the discussion but you know closing the deal is always hard and that's what i didn't realize uh going into things like when i first started we just got so much positive feedback about what we were doing and we were like oh we could close all these customers in a couple of months but it turned out to be like a year, year and a <laughs> half, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I
1: think sales, I don't know. I think our our society, you know, doesn't have a high regard for salespeople in general. I, I just don't think I know any entrepreneurs who haven't built, you know, like built some sales skills or, or for a lot of them, a lot of sales skills. You know, they're selling employees on coming to work for us, selling investors on supporting us, selling the customers of, you know, take a gamble on
0: us. For sure. Yeah, totally. I totally understand that. Like, it's so little about the idea, right? And it's so much about can you convince someone to fund you? Right. Yeah. Totally right. It's a it's a lot of it is about sales. So I mean, it is what it is. It's it's definitely definitely skill I had to learn. I don't. I'm not. I don't think I'm that strong in sales uh, myself. So, but luckily we had a, a strong product, right? And it kind of speaks for itself. So that that's always great.
1: Yeah. For you, what do you feel like is when you think about like your philosophy for sales? What what are some of the principles that have been successful for you or or what what how do you think about successful sales yourself?
0: When we were first selling to insurance companies, we just kind of attended conferences and flagged down people one by one and we found that that was way more effective than trying to send an email, which I think these days is just everyone gets cold emails, you get LinkedIn requests every day right and so it's just not there's just so much noise that I end up ignoring everything and so the in-person part is I think still extremely important being able to sit down with someone and talk about things and then secondly I I think I talked about this already about like just having market fit to begin with like if you're solving a real problem you don't really have to explain yourself and so that, that that gets you through the door pretty quickly so that's good let's see I think for me one of the things is like just don't get caught up in being rejected and don't take it too seriously. I just found that if I just like go in thinking, hey, it's not a big deal if you don't win this account, then actually it, it's, it's a lot better. You come off as less, I guess, desperate, you would say, and you just feel more confident about yourself and what you're doing if you just don't, if you care less, right? And so I think that helped out a lot because you, know, you have to pitch to a lot of people and, and only a few come in, right? And so that is... It's similar to fundraising, I think. And so just learning to, to just roll with unexpected um, downturns is always something I had to learn and kind of deal with. I'm interested. Do you have any things you tell yourself?
1: Or are there any books that you go back to? Or how do you help yourself through unexpected downturns? What does that
0: look like for you? That's really interesting. When I was younger, I had a harder time dealing with unexpected issues. And so I think now as I get a little bit older, I, I do think I handled them a lot better and I just expect them a lot more. I think that's, that's, that's really the thing I would say has changed about me. I just expect things to fail all the time right? And then when they don't fail, it's just a plus, right? So I think that's the big thing, really, like, and maybe that rubs off in parenting at, at, at some point as well, because you have to teach your kids about failure. And like, I don't think I was taught that ever. Like, I just kind of kept going and things always worked out. So just learning about failure and that that's okay. And that's actually part of the process of kind of succeeding. That's pretty important. I don't think I've read many books about this kind of stuff. And Probably to my detriment, because I kinda learned had to learn things the hard way. But I think, yeah, you, you can't succeed without failing a lot. So that's good, you know, that's 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 a good thing to learn for sure.
1: Yeah. You know, a couple of books that have helped me that might be worth looking at. One is they're kind of like about like stoic philosophy. Like one is this guy, Jim Stockdale, James Stockdale was like the mm-hmm. senior most guy who got shot down during Vietnam, it was in like prison camps for like nine years. And just his approach of like not letting himself get to a place of exaggerated victimhood. Uh, same with Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, about being in the Nazi prison camps. Mm-hmm. And then
0: probably the third one. Oh, Oh, I've read that one, actually. That, I've read great, uh, right? Viktor Frankl's book. That's a great book. Yeah, that's a great book. Probably the yeah.
1: thir- my third favorite in that genre is... Do you know the Ryan Holiday book, The
0: Obstacle is the Way? I haven't read that one. So. It's,
1: it's good. It's it's quick read. It's super entertaining. It's super good that one and the thoughts of a philosophical fighter pilot are, are like kind of two of my favorites there cuz i i'm such an optimistic guy it's harder for me to like like to not
0: set such high expectations and go so anyways for what it's worth well no that's awesome i'd, lo- I'd love to read some of those uh, books sometime i think yeah it's 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 hard to have a good mindset and especially i've i've actually seen some people that can't take failure well and it's been seen some pretty terrible things happen and but I think it's just part of life right and that's something you have to learn my actually actually when this is a suicide once from a, a company I invested in and their their founder um I guess was, was, was their company was not doing well and so yeah I think it's, you have to learn it, to it's to, get, so tough, to, right? to kind of keep going it's
1: mm-hmm. you know you see that yeah. sometimes with like chefs that get too tied up in their Michelin star mm-hmm. reviews or you know, I think for me, it can be really tempting to wrap up my self-worth in my accomplishments or in other people's opinion of me, you know, and mm-hmm. then I get to like this desperation where I need, I need everybody to believe the cardboard cutout version of myself. I wish people believed, you know, <laughs> like looks good and smells yeah. good all the time instead of like the real life human
0: that makes mistakes and doesn't always know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's super tough, I think, especially now with social media and just everyone kind of projecting an image of themselves to to others, like it's just super unhealthy in many ways. It, it keeps society going, right? But it's also not the healthiest thing and it's, it's getting worse, I feel. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people actually like especially in the entrepreneurs that like some of them really gravitate towards social social media and some of them just turn it off like completely they just like shut down all their accounts they don't want to deal with it and cuz this is like it just it just gives them stress that you know at the end of the day it doesn't really matter when you pass away what some what your followers on Twitter think right and so yeah I think I think yeah, it's just way worse now than it was um, years ago you know I I, my like
1: addiction, social media addiction was more the LinkedIn, you know, like just a lot Mm -hmm. of my business contacts were on there. It felt more professional. Mm -hmm. Didn't feel like I was just wasting Mm -hmm. time. And like, there's legitimate business reasons that we're trying to find investors for our our graystokeinvestments.com. Right. And, and then I looked and I was like, okay, how many hours this week do I think I was on here? And what do I actually think the financial benefit was? Like. Is that is that really the return on investment I'm looking for for those hours? And I'm like, I think I'm halfway in between there. So I deleted all I deleted all the apps off my phones, and I'm like, if I really need to go check this, if I want to see what my buddies are doing, you know, my snowboarder buddies from back home in Canada, I'll like log on and do it. Or if I want to post something, I download the app to my phone, post my snowboarding pictures, and then re-delete it off the phone. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> this is
0: my... Where yeah. are you from in Canada? I didn't, I didn't know you were Canadian.
1: Oh yeah, I'm from Alberta. Oh, nice. Just, okay. uh, you know Awesome. Just next to I didn't the know that. Rocky Mountains. Yeah. I, I married a California girl though. She didn't want to live where it was cold. So I had to trade in snowboarding for surfing when we first got married and spent the first years down in Orange County in the Huntington Beach in San Clemente. And I uh so excited. I, I finally got my kids surfing this summer. It's like this big dad moment that All all four of my kids have been able to stand up on surfboards. And, you know, I feel like passing the torch a little is uh, is proud dad moments. But That's awesome. You know, we like to cut these interviews in half. This is probably a good part to end part one. But I'd love to end with one of my favorite questions, which is, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received?
0: I actually don't know. I'll have to think about that one a little bit more. I'll
1: I'll give you a different question then. When you think about one of the people who, like, played one of the most positive like role model roles for you that had a big influence on you earlier in your life or in your career. Who's somebody that you look up to? Who's somebody that, that had a big influence on you and why?
0: Yeah, I think my grandmother probably had a lot of influence on me. She was super home, just did her stuff, did her work and worked really hard. She worked in the sewing factory in Chinatown in New York city. And always helped others. Always was super nice. I used to get um, some comments from other kids I grew up with, like, "Why is your grandma so nice and my grandma isn't?" Right? And so, <laughs> like, stuff like that. And then, like, just like her approach to life. I think that 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 made a lot of sense to me, and it kind of influenced me, like, growing up, is just being nice to others and being able to kind of try to help the others when you can. That's that's definitely something I I enjoy doing if I, when I can. So, so that's, that, that was a big influence for me.
1: That's great. She sounds like a great, well, everybody, this is the end of part one. Please tune in to part two. I've got a lot more questions for Phil. Thanks everyone.